right, good morning, everyone here gathered together in a watch group online. It is good to be with you this morning as we continue our Pioneer Series. I hope you were blessed by those testimonies. I am every week as we get to hear how God is working in people's lives. It's just so exciting, and it's great to be here in this place where we can take some time out of our week where we're just bombarded with everything around us to just go, hey, Let's focus on the word of God. I appreciate Pastor Gabe and the worship team who helped us really focus on what God has for us this morning. Hey, if you're joining us for the first time, um, whether it be online or in a room or right here in the house, we wanna welcome you. You've uh, encountered us in the middle of our Pioneer series, or I should say in the beginning. They said, Chris, Chris, you're only in Acts chapter two. I said, okay, you're right. You know, we got a while in Acts, but um, I, I trust you've been enjoying this series as we've been really taking an angle of looking at some of the figures, some of the characters in our story and, and learning from them. And, and many of you are associated with them and their personalities, which has been a fun aspect of this series too. Well, what's a pioneer? A pioneer is someone who is willing to do whatever, whenever, and however the Lord calls them to do it. They just say, I'm in. I'm all in. And, and this series isn't for everybody. For there are people who are growing in their faith. They're not maybe ready to say, God, I'll do whatever you want. I'll go wherever you call me, and I'll do it however you want me to. Sometimes we put rules on God. Sometimes we, we tell God, this is what I'm willing to do. This is what not, I'm not ready to do that yet. This is for that person who goes, you know what? I want to take a step into the unknown. I, I can tell within society and my own life, we are going to be embarking on a new kind of life, okay? I don't say new normal. Some of you like freak out when I say that. I hate that term. Okay, just, but you can tell things are changing, and you're being called to change. And in times, there's uncomfortable aspects to that. And so we're being called to pioneer a new frontier. And I'm just challenging us during this time to look at the pioneers of Acts and say, how can I pioneer something new? So each week, I've given us a pioneer. Somebody who went into unknown territory and God used them in, in mighty different ways. We've looked at William Tyndale. We, now, the, today, we have a, a new person to look at. And you're gonna recognize him when I throw up the picture. But uh, let me tell you about this uh, pioneer. At the age of... Um, well, let me start here. He's born in North Carolina and was a voracious reader. In fact, I told you my hero is uh, the Incredible Hulk, okay, who doesn't, what little kid doesn't like someone who loses their temper and destroys things? I mean, it's just great, right? Well, well his hero was Tarzan. So this, this pioneer's hero was Tarzan, and he liked to pretend to be Tarzan and swing from limb to limb. He just loved to read. Um, when the prohibition ended, his father actually made him drink alcohol till he got sick, and it was a memorable moment in his life, but it's also a time where you see that he didn't necessarily grow up um, being constantly courted towards the things of the Lord. But it was when he was 16 years old, uh, believe it or not, he was attending an evangelistic rally, okay? Makes sense, right? And he came to know Jesus as his personal savior. He went on from there to go to uh, Bob Jones University, left there feeling it was a bit too legalistic for him, and went to the Florida Bible Institute. It was at the Florida Bible Institute while on a golf course, I don't know who I'm speaking to there, but on the 18th hole, he says, I really felt God calling me into ministry. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever played golf, if he was on the 18th hole, he probably had a horrible day and was deciding, I never want to do this again. But, but there, it's where he felt the call. In fact, there is a park named after him directly east 
from the 18th hole of that golf course today, um, where it sits. Uh, It was from there he moved on from Florida Bible Institute to Wheaton College. Many of you are familiar with Wheaton College. And while he was studying there, he also took a pastorate. So for all you college students who feel a little overwhelmed with just your studies, this pioneer was pastoring a church while attending college. I'm not sure why that church allowed that, but if you know this man's reality, they probably made a good call. Okay, um, it was from there that um, it was a local pastor who his, he had this radio ministry. Young people, they used to listen to this thing called radio a lot before this screen showed up. And this radio ministry was dying. It wasn't doing well. And so the pastor, the local pastor, asked this young preacher, would you be interested in taking on this radio program for me? Well, this young pioneer accepted that challenge began to do radio shows, and even asked a guy by the name of George Beverly Shea to sing for him while he did these evangelistic radio programs. Well, before long, he came up with this idea to put a huge tent together and have an evangelistic rally where he'd share the gospel. And it was 1947, he held his first what he would call crusades and began to go around the country in these crusades preaching the gospel. And crowds came from everywhere. And one of the things he did following his hero, Dwight L. Moody, ever hear that name? Um, Dwight L. Moody would give an altar call and the people would come forward if they wanted to receive the gospel. And thus, the ministry of these crusades began, and thousands and thousands and thousands of people came. In fact, statistics say that he held 400 crusades in 85 different countries and is now called one of the most influential Christians in all of American history. Do you know our pioneer? Yeah, it's Billy Graham, right? What's interesting about Billy Graham is The world hated him at times, but also Christians at times. He took brow beatings from fundamental groups just as much as he did from unbelievers, for they didn't like all his methods and his practices. But I'm going to tell you as a preacher, there was clearly a call on this guy's life, for there are many dynamic preachers and many dynamic personalities, okay? But none of them can put 80,000 people in a stadium, God used this man in massive ways, and he was sharing repentance And unfortunately, people who felt different things about him at all times were constantly going at him, and he faced a ton, a ton of flack. In fact, if you ever want to read about all he went through as a leader and actually gain a ton of respect for him, read The Secret Leadership Styles of Billy Graham. It's a fascinating read. I read it for myself. I couldn't put it down of what he actually went through. Did you know he became a spiritual advisor to the presidents of the United States? From the 33rd president, he began with Harry S. Truman all the way through Barack Obama, the 44th president. That's how many presidents he was the spiritual advisor for. He was closest with Lyndon Johnson, who continually offered him jobs. In fact, he was told to run for president multiple times. NBC offered him a million dollar contract, which was huge in the 50s, for him to do a TV show. 
He was constantly called from Hollywood. Some say that he was offered the part that Charleston Heston got for Moses. And, and as, the, as I went on, he was so popular and so famous and so well-known that he was constantly being pulled in different directions. But what inspired me the most about his testimony and the fact of the pioneer he was is he stayed faithful to his call. He realized he wasn't necessarily a pastor. He was an evangelist, and he was called to share the gospel. People wanted him to make his pulpit political, and he wouldn't do it, for he felt it would hinder the growth of the gospel. And many people pushed on his pulpit to say, use your platform to do this agenda. Use your platform. And he would constantly come back to, my goal is to preach the gospel. And so whether people argued with his methods or not, or what happened at the Crusades or not, he had an amazing impact. In fact, Pastor Doug would tell you his brothers and sisters were saved at a Billy Graham crusade themselves, um, having traversed down to Philadelphia from Souderton area to hear the evangelist speak. It is said that he has an estimated lifetime audience of 2.5 billion people. 2.5 billion people have heard the gospel from Billy Graham's mouth and the Billy Graham Foundation says that they have received 3.2 million responses of invitations to accept Jesus Christ as their personal savior because of the Crusades. Pretty influential life. A pioneer life who went into TV and shared the gospel at a time where that wasn't necessarily, it was a little taboo in the church, and it was also a time period where the world was embracing this new. But what's interesting is when God calls a life, he calls them to do whatever, to surrender their comforts, and his life was a life of constant pushback. You can read it in the biography. With a whenever, okay, um, I'll surrender my plans. I'm gonna do what I have for you. The however, I'll surrender my ways, God, for you. And so I understand I'm not gonna speak to the entire audience, for there's some who are just investing in Christianity and some who aren't really ready to be sold out for it. I wanna talk to those who say, I am tired of being mediocre in my faith. I am tired of just kinda going through the motions. I am tired, I think I heard it in the testimony, just checking a box on a Sunday. I wanna do something massive for God. I want to pioneer something. I wanna talk to that person, because I believe you're at a special intersection in your life. And the book of Acts is filled with Jesus pushing his pioneers into something new. And I want to encourage you that he's still doing that work today. And I pray it blesses you as we go through this series. Heavenly Father, I ask you today, fill this place with a sense of awe and excitement for the word of God. Lord, I know anybody who turns on first, who comes to first knows we love the Bible here and we love to preach it. And so Lord, as we dive into the book of Acts, I pray it inspires all of us to want to pioneer for you, to not just sit, to not just step back, but to say, I want to do something for you, God. Show me what it is. But oftentimes, it means we're gonna have to sacrifice some comfort. We're gonna have to sacrifice our plans. And we're gonna have to do it the way you say, not the way we might necessarily want to. So Lord, use that. Show us that. What aspect? And inspire us to be pioneers as we enter this new world that many of us are feeling is taking place right before our eyes. Lord, thank you for this time where we can set aside during the week to focus on you and nothing else. In Jesus' name, amen.
All right, so we've been looking at our 12 pioneers, right? Jesus has got a cast of characters, doesn't he? Have you found yourself in any of these characters? Peter, the influential leader. This guy walks in a room, he's full of passion and emotion, and he says something and people just follow him. James, you know, the, the energy guy, but, but you know, the fighter. He's got, he's, you know, he maybe a little quick-tempered. God, let's call down fire on them, right? John, the man of conviction. Look, it's black or white for John. Either you love God or you hate God. This isn't that hard, right? You've got Andrew, the servant leader, working behind the scenes, bringing people to Christ, telling the Greeks, come here, here he is, this is Jesus. You got Philip, the detail guy. There's gotta be a detail guy in the room. He knows the numbers, he knows the stats. Jesus, we can't just feed everybody here at the 5,000. You got Bartholomew, or also called Nathaniel, the scholar. He's the brainiac, heard Jesus was coming. And he said, where's he from? He's from Nazareth. He said, can anything good from Nazareth? I mean, I'm a studied guy. Can I listen to somebody who came from Nazareth? You got Matthew, the publican. He's a recovering rebel, if you will. He, he's that guy who, who walked away and betrayed his own Jewish people and took taxes from them, maybe even stole from them. And when Jesus said, follow me, Matthew, he went right away. It's almost like he hated his life. You got Thomas, the faithful follower, brokenhearted that he lost his friend Jesus. I won't believe he's resurrected until I touch his hands. He missed him so. The one willing to go and die with him, um, Thomas, the faithful follower. James Alpheus, the obscure one. You know, my wife says, that's me. I'm James of Alpheus. Some of you feel like maybe you're a little more obscure or in the background. He's named every time. As a, as a disciple, he's named every time, but he's never mentioned what he does, so we don't know him. So I encourage you, church, when you go to glory, go hang out with James Alpheus, give him some love, okay? Uh, um, Thaddeus, the hype guy, Jesus, show off already, come on, show yourself to everybody the way you do us. Simon the zealot, the activist, the political guy, come on, Jesus, we gotta make the Jews what they should be, we gotta attack and fight Rome. And then Matthias, the replacement, the guy who grew up in the system, if you will, followed Jesus around, and Judas, when he betrayed and, was, and, and took his own life, they looked to Matthias to replace him. And we have our 12, the witnesses who would go out and advance the gospel. But it's Peter who has been our subject over the last week and this week. Peter was Jesus' bulldog. A little bit high energy, a little bit crazy at times. He was the guy where Jesus often had to say, settle down. He's jumping out of boats. He's cutting people's ears off. This guy, he acted first, thought about it second, okay? But people followed him. And because he was followed, Jesus had a work to do through him and confront him and grow him. And he did it often. There's a certain situation it's happened in a little house, we, we don't know exactly where, off in a market street, but where Jesus and Peter went face to face. Yeah, Peter, the one whose name was Simon, and Jesus said, I'm going to call you Peter, right? We, we leveraged the Tommy Lasorda Oral Hershizer last week, where Oral was weak and soft, and Tommy Lasorda said, you're going to be my bulldog, and he took on that. Well, Jesus did the same with Peter. He said, you're Simon, but I'm going to make you a rock, and I'm going to build my church on it. And these two went face to face. Would you dare confront Jesus? I wouldn't. Peter would. And then this is how the account goes, if you're unfamiliar with it. It's an interesting account. From that time, Jesus began to show himself to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, but on the third day be raised again. This is Matthew writing, our publican, who now is writing the gospel of Matthew, focusing on Jews coming to know Christ because he's just become a real evangelist. And he's telling us the account of when Jesus was saying, I'm headed to Jerusalem, which means he was going to die. I'm going to be killed, guys. 
Well, one guy in the audience didn't like this. Nobody pushes around his savior. And, and like a respectful follower, he doesn't confront his rabbi publicly, but he pulls him to the side. Here's how the story goes. And Peter took him aside. Come here, Jesus, come here, come here. And he began to rebuke him. Rebuke, yeah, correct God. Some of you chuckled. That is the point, but how many of you have tried to correct God in your prayers? I think we're all a little bit like Peter, aren't we? Hey, God, I don't like what you're doing. I want to pull you aside and talk to you for a minute. Peter pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Far be it from you. He starts to correct. Far be it from you, Jesus, that this shall ever happen to you. It's almost like he's saying, can't be saying this stuff. You're going to discourage the guys. You're going to be killed. You're going to do this. And not only that, I can't lose you. I can't lose you. You almost get the emotion of this. Stop talking about you dying. It's like Peter, he did say, and then rise again the third day. He don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about the fact that he said he's going to die. Stop talking like that. He's correcting him. And Jesus turns to him. And you would think Jesus would say, look, Peter, I don't want to offend you here. But you're a little bit off base. You're only thinking about yourself and what you want and not what's best for everyone. Nope. Jesus goes, get behind me, Satan. Okay, Jesus, could you come up with a different name? Brood of vipers maybe throw in here? No, get behind me, Satan. I can almost picture Peter going, Jesus, you can't be talking like this. Get behind me, Satan. Satan, some of you teased me back in the time we did Job where I called it the Satan, which is the Hebrew translation of Satan. It means adversary. Get behind me, adversary. Peter, what you are saying right now is in direct opposition to what I'm called to do. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but you're setting your mind on the things of man. You're being selfish. You're being self-focused. And you're missing what I'm saying. I have a mission to do God's will. Get out of my way. But I also think within Jesus, as we learn, as we watch his life, going to the cross was hard and difficult. Jesus wept in the garden, tears of blood. Father, if there's any other way I can do this, is there just another way? And he said, but not my will, your will be done. And anybody who tried to interfere with Jesus' one focus was like an adversary to him. You know, we all like food, right? You know what Jesus thought of food? He thought of food like it's his father's will. In fact, he said at one time to his disciples, it is my food to do the Father's will. I live off of it. It's as if he's saying, I have a purpose and I eat purpose. I eat purpose. And that is my Father's will. And anybody who gets in the way is being a hindrance to me, including you, Peter. And he scolded him. And then he turned to rest of him, maybe, or just him. But he says this, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself. I'm not looking for, I still want my comforts. I still want my plans. I still want my timing. I want somebody who says, all right, no more me. What do you got for me, God? What do you want? Let him deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Following Christ, being a pioneer, is a death march to self. It is not a, I want cookies 
and also commitment. It is all in, all in. Let me ask athletes out there, do you know the difference between an all in athlete and just someone who's talented? Musicians, do you know the difference between a musician who wants it and a musician who kinda wants it? How about employers out there? Do you know an employee who wants it and an employee who just wants a check? There is a difference. It's called devotion. It's called energy towards a goal. It's called focus. William Barclay says, to deny oneself means in every moment of life to say no to self and yes to God. I wanna do myself. No, do what God's calling you to do. I feel like, I don't know about you personally, but doesn't it feel like sometimes when we wake up and the switch is on self? You got a light switch in your bedroom? I've always looked at my light switch and when I turn it on, okay, and I don't always turn it on in case I beat my wife up, which is seldom, by the way. Um, but, but if the light switch is this, I turn it on or I turn it off, it's like I wake up with my selfish desires and I have to get my head right. That's why it's so important to pray in the morning it's so important sometimes to have some scripture in front of you in the morning. So you get your day started off thinking not about what Chris wants, which is a pretty lousy way to get in a car. And if someone cuts you off, you're going to respond differently than if you wake up saying, God, I got to make this about what you want for me. But isn't it neat about God? There's just some times where he just goes, because he loves us too much. I call them about face moments. Make no mistake. Peter was just flat out scolded. Okay, you ever been scolded? Young people, you ever get scolded? Um, I shouldn't say that. Seniors, um, hey husbands, you ever get scolded? Right, yeah, yeah, we've all been scolded, right? Uh, um, these are about face moments. I'm not a military guy. I have a high respect for military guys. They're just awesome. And I love to read about um, the different accounts. My father served in the military. He's told me story after story. But my one chance at doing something military was in Watchmen. If you're familiar with our church, you've heard me illustrate this. I wanna do what's called a, a bodily illustration, okay, um, about something that's in scripture, about face, we were called the watchmen, okay, in this little group I was in, and we, we had little platoons and stuff, and we would stand at attention, stand at attention, we'd stand, yeah, I still get excited when I hear a loud hoorah, okay, I still get pumped up, all right, but, but we stood at attention, and he'd go, about face, right, okay, and then we, we'd go like this, we'd, go, we, we'd put our back foot down like this, and we'd spin and be at a 45, I just thought that was so cool, I still like doing it, it was my moonwalk, if you will. I should try it as a dance move sometime at a wedding or something. About face! And, and we would just, we'd go from looking one direction, stop and turn. They're about face moments. When Jesus, when someone says, knock it off. I remember being, being all frustrated in high school at my coach. I was just so ticked off. This coach was all over me, all over me. It just, I just felt like he was just completely after me. And, and I got fed up with it. And I was a little bit of a hothead and I'm being nice to myself. And, and I got sick of it and I just walked off the court. And as I was walking off to the court, I was told, go sit down. And as I'm walking off the court, I kicked, I kicked the water bucket. It goes well with a coach when you do that. Boom, I kicked the thing, knocked over somebody else's stuff. Look at my teammates looking at me like, you are so dead, you know? And I'm just so frustrated, I sit down. Hey, Heller, leave the gym, I'm fine. Boom, I blew the door open. You know, I can make them sound really loud. Teens, you know, I can make doors sound really loud. Boom, threw the door open, went out in the hall. I was so frustrated. Assistant coach comes walking out. Don't you love assistant coaches? I praise God for assistant coaches. 
sits down next to me. I'm like sitting there like this. He goes, Heller, what? Heller, 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 what? Knock it off. Not, just knock it off. You want to know why coach is so hard on you? Yes, I do want to know why. The same kid did that. I do it. It's like, <laughs> Chris, do you not see everybody follows you? Do you not see when you have an attitude, they all do? Do you not see that you were only thinking about yourself? All truth. Is this all about you? You playing for the name on the front of the jersey or on the back of the jersey? Because I think you're playing for the name on the back. You want to know why coach is hard on you? I'll tell you why. Coach says this all the time. I'm only hard on the ones I think actually can do something. He goes, so take it as an honor. If coach is hard on you, he believes in you. He's pushing you and he wants to see more out of you. Take it as an honor. So you go back in there, you do whatever coach says, you run your laps, you do your push-ups, you apologize to your team publicly and get back on that court and play like you're capable of. And look at it as coach pushing you, not holding you back. Stinks when the adults in your life are all right. So I went back in the gym. I did what my assistant coach said. And throughout the rest of the season, when coach was driving me nuts, I'd look over at the assistant coach. I'd say, he loves me. He goes, he does. He loves you. Peter has a moment that Jesus was preparing him for. He would scold Peter and correct Peter because he knew there would be a moment where Peter needed to leverage his influence to turn around a situation. And that situation was Peter's sermon. And we began to tackle it last week where the people happen, the Pentecost happens. The Holy Spirit comes down on the disciples, right? They're gathered together. Fire comes down, separates onto each one. They begin to speak in tongues and they're speaking and people are hearing in their known language and they're going, what's going on? And thousands are beginning to gather around the guys and somebody, a group of people, whatever has the audacity to go, this is a joke, these guys are drunk. That's what this is. This is the moment the Holy Spirit has come upon the apostles and somebody yells out, they're just drunk. And Peter confronts it. He steps up. It's time to scold not a person, but a crowd. And where did he learn this? When did he learn to confront the things that are wrong? He learned it from the one who invested his life into him. And he would lead a sermon that would do an about face on an entire crowd and alter the very course of history. This pioneer was prepared for this moment. Let me take you to it. It's in Acts chapter two. The whole sermon's 14 through 36, but I would specifically want to park on what he says in the second half as we did the first half already. He confronts these guys and says, we're not drunk, it's 9 a.m. Even if we were drunk, it's too early for that. The Holy Spirit has just descended on us and we're speaking in tongues and people are hearing our language because God is doing a new thing. And he turns, he says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, this fisherman's just preaching. Fisherman from Galilee. He didn't go to five years of preaching school and he just starts preaching. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and signs that God did through him in your midst as you all know. I'm going to pretend you're the crowd. I dearly love you. I'm not pointing at any of you. Peter's like, you all saw it. 
Jesus appeared 40 days after his resurrection, another 10 days waiting for Pentecost. These people are about two months out from the crucifixion. This crowd, many in the crowd Peter's preaching to, just two months ago were going, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Do you want Barabbas? No, go ahead and let him free, crucify him. And they bought hook, line, and sinker into the Pharisees' charge that this man had done evil. And they had yelled, crucify. Now Peter's standing up in front of them. Now within that crowd, people for the last two months were going, remember that night? When he, when he died, remember the last thing he said, it is finished? Remember, remember the earthquake? Oh yeah, I was in my house and my dishes were like shaking and stuff. And, I, and did, you hear, did you hear over at the temple that the veil was torn from the top down? I did hear that. Oh my word, I know, I know. I heard a centurion. I heard a centurion after the fact said, that's my Lord, that's my Lord. And, and I, somebody told me that he said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be impaired. All this stuff has been going on for two months and that same crowd who's kind of feeling like, that might've been the Christ. Peter's up in front of going, you saw it. This Jesus, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God raised him up. You put him before a human court and you judged him and you said he was guilty, but he went to a higher court and he stood before God's court and God released him of the charge because that higher court said the human court doesn't know what they're talking about and he released him from the pangs of death and then this Galilean starts quoting David. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul in Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And Peter, he, he's the apologist now. He's speaking great and he's going, I know what David was talking about. David saw Jesus sitting at the right hand. He said, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and in the tomb is to this day. He's dead, he's gone. But being there for a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with him by oath to him that he would set one of his descendants before his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and that we are all witnesses. You saw him. That was God. That Jesus you yelled crucify was God. And therefore, being exalted at the right hand of the Father, received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured it out, this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You know, you hear me speaking in a tongue. It's because the Holy Spirit has come to me. For David did not descend into heaven. But he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. I love this. Just let me, just let me jump into this real quick. If you, if you let, let just jump beneath a little jump, we say, let's jump into seminary for a second. The Lord said to my Lord, if you look in the original text, it literally says this, then Yahweh said to Adonai. The two persons of the Trinity speaking with one another. Then Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a foothold. Let all the house of Israel, he says, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Here, here's why you need to, here's why you need to, if you, if you, if you check out, because somebody read that much, 21st century audience, stay with me right now. Here's why this is so big. 
Prophecy was pointing to the fact that the Holy Spirit would come after Jesus was given his position of authority at the right hand. For the apostles, they just saw Jesus go up. In 10 days, you'll receive the promise. And they stood there. Oh my word, he just went up into heaven. And then two guys show up, angels presumably, and say, men of Galilee, why do you stand there staring into the heavens? Oh my word. He'll come just like he just left. Oh my word. I never see anybody go up and straight. He went straight up. Straight up. Woo, gone. Never seen that. I've seen rockets. I've seen never. But the way they're guaranteed of where he is, scripture says when he sits down at the right hand, he's going to send the spirit. So the apostles are going, we just got the spirit. They're, Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. It's official. It's done. That was the moment. Jesus is God. The same Jesus. You ready for this? He goes, you all crucified. How would they respond? I was goofing around the back of a church because my buddy was up front doing motions to a song. And we weren't in the group, so it was a group of us, eh, middle school, maybe early high school. And we were in the back of the church, just one little church in the back with pews and stuff. We were in the back, and he went up front with the rest of the group, and we knew he was uncomfortable, so we decided to try to make him laugh. So we're in the back, and he's doing motions. Doing all these motions. And so we're in the back going... And we're in the back row, so we figure nobody sees us, right? There's parts of sign language in the song. He's doing it, and he's trying his hardest. And you see him like, and we're like. It was the funnest evening service I ever had. I mean, I, I mean, we laughed the whole evening service away, okay? And evening services for us were just a little later in the Sunday and a little worse, okay, than the Sunday morning, okay? That's how we saw the evening. And, and so we were all back there, and we just entertained ourselves, okay? Yes, my father was a deacon, but I'm in the back entertaining myself, just, and I've influenced my whole row to do this, and we had him laughing. On, we just had the funnest time. And we're walking out at the end of the thing, and, and I hear this, Chris, sweet lady, huh? I turn around, I got like my Penridge football jacket on. <clears throat> I turn around, yeah, yeah, yeah. She goes, uh, can I talk to you for a minute? And my buddy stops, he, a couple of the buddies went, oh, this don't look good, and they kept going, you know? You know when to get out of there? I'm like, yeah, 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 what's going on? She said, um, you know, you're a very influential guy, and when you do something, a lot of people follow you. And... You know, my daughter appreciates the songs. She really does know only sign language. And so if you're in the back making fun of it, I understand you're probably just teasing your friend. But in doing so, it really hurt me. And it really hurt. And she started, and I'm like, it really hurt my daughter. And I just think maybe you should think about that as you get older. And she left. And I'm standing there like this. Have you ever had moments like that where you've been called out and they're so right? They're so right and you were so wrong? And yeah, you could chalk it up to immaturity and stupidity, but it spoke to me. It like went right into my heart that I still remember it to this day. When Peter said, you crucified him, scripture says, they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Remember, this is the first message preached by the Holy Spirit's empowering since Jesus Christ. Jesus is, Peter is speaking with spirit-filled message. 
The church is hearing it, if you will, as it's beginning, and they were cut to the heart. You ever hear the word of God called like a two-edged sword? You ever be listening to a sermon, whether you're at home or in a group or right here, and, and you didn't hear anything except that one thing, and it just, just grabbed your heart, and you knew there was a moment of change coming? They were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? We did crucify him. I bet there were people going, I did yell it. I did, I did, I yelled, I don't crucify it. I, can, I know it, I know it was wrong. And Peter said, repent. Let me do a biblical definition of repentance with bodily language, okay? Here's what repentance is. It means you were going one direction and you stopped and turned around. They're knock it off moments. We all need people in our life who are willing and love us enough to walk up to us and go, hey, Knock it off. And sometimes the scripture does it. It just is like you're sitting there in the church service. You had a certain attitude towards your wife, towards your kids, and you were coming in, you were sitting, and we're talking, and we're preaching, and you're like, what, does Chris live in our house? I don't live in your house, okay? Like, how did you know? No, that's the Holy Spirit going, and grabbing you by that heart. And he's saying, change your ways. Knock it off, turn around. Peter said, knock it off. We ain't drunk. We're preaching Jesus Christ. Repent, be baptized, every one of you. Wait, wait, not just the Jews, Peter. No, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not just for us, it's for all of you, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. It was a Billy Graham message where he said, speaking on God calling him to himself, he goes, you can't just come to God. You know how he preached. You can't just come to God whenever you want to. God has to call you to himself. And for many of you, this is the closest you'll ever get to God this night. There was always a sense of urgency in his voice that was just so awesome. Many of you, today is your day. Holy Spirit's cutting to your heart, and you know you got to change your ways. This might be your moment. See, one day, the last person that God's calling to himself is going to get saved. We out of here. And if you're in this room, could you get saved today? I really need to get out of here, all right? Let's go. God's calling us. We'll talk about more of God's call, effectual call, as we move through this series but the scripture says, in many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received this word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. If you're like, I don't really like big churches, you wouldn't like the first church. Church needs to be more like the church in Acts. Well, then you better get 3,000 people in here. 3,000 people came to know Jesus Christ as their personal savior because Peter stood up and said, knock it off, turn around, come to Christ. 3,000, I love it, souls. George McDonald says, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. You have a earthly body, you'll have a glorified body one day. But see, even preachers and pastors are called to watch over your souls your soul is that redeemable part of you. It's not material, it's immaterial. And it will live forever, either in heaven or hell. And as a preacher, I'm not doing my job if I don't watch over your soul and tell you, make sure you're going to heaven. 
Make sure you're going to heaven. The offer is there for you for forgiveness of sin. You can walk one way into this church and leave going a different direction. You can be walking away from God and be walking towards God with turning, repenting of your sin, accepting Jesus Christ as your personal savior. Do you remember a day? Do you remember a time? Scripture says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, cut to the heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Did somebody bring you in today to hear that? Did somebody welcome you into the room to sit down and say, hey, could you stop and just listen to this message for a minute? Is somebody out there, today's your day? where you're gonna call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, amen, church? What happens when that happens? What happens when you come to know Jesus Christ as your savior? There is a complete change. Watch the same crowd that yelled, crucify him, watch what happens. This is great. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to breaking of bread and to the prayers. They devoted themselves. Athletes, do you know what it looks like to be devoted? Or just playing games? Musicians, do you know what it likes to be devoted? Teachers, do you know what it looks like to have a student that is devoted versus not devoted? Let me hear you. You know that, right? Devoted. Devote, not, not like when we fit it in or, geez, how long have we been here? No, 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 no devoted, can't get enough of it. They want it. There is true life change. Do you remember when you first got saved? Remember how fire you were? What happened? What happened to that fire? Have you allowed the world to discourage you? Have you allowed your circumstances to defeat you? What happened to that fire? Maybe Jesus needs to reach into your heart and go, knock it off. Step it up. People need to hear my my saving truth, we can't be sitting around pouting about the state of the world. There is a gospel, a good news, and it needs to be shared. Devote yourself to me. I see four things they started devoting themselves to. Preaching in Jesus' name. The apostles are preaching Jesus. The fellowship. They were loving one another because of Jesus to the breaking of bread. They're gathering because of Jesus. I want you to come together and break bread around my name. And to the prayers, they're praying in Jesus' name. Folks, we have an assembly of people making everything they do all about Jesus. What is that? This wasn't Judaism. This is about Jesus. Now, you have the launch of the church. It's all focused on Jesus. Preaching, loving one another, gathering together, praying. They're devoted to it. And then this is what they do. Look at this. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. There was a sense of adoration in their assembly. Then, then this uh, scripture says this. And all who believed were gathered and they had all things in common. There was a unity in their assembly. And then scripture says this. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had a need. There was incredible generosity in this assembly. He continues and says, and day by day, not, not every once in a while, but daily they attended the temple together and the breaking of bread in their homes. There was commitment in that assembly. And Luke tells us this, that they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. There was gratitude in that assembly. But most beautifully, the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. There was growth in that assembly. 
I get told by, I get asked by college students, hey, what do you think I should look for in a church and stuff like that? You know, I've been watching you online, Pastor Chris, and all this stuff, and when all this shakes out, what are some things that maybe I should be looking for or whatever? Continue to follow us and all those things, but maybe look for in a local assembly. Here's some characteristics you can take from the early church. Look for a place that's devoted to preaching. Not like, you know, quick hit sermons, you know, we'll wrap up here quick. Devoted to preaching. Look for a place that's devoted to loving one another and teaching the 52 commandments of how to love one another. Not suggestions, commandments. Devoted to gathering together, whether it be online or in the house. Devoted to prayer. There's a sense of adoration in a church like that. They respect God. They're not a God's neat, let's eat kind of church. They have a sense of awe, okay, of their heavenly father. There's unity and mission. They kind of know why they're there. There's generosity. You'll see in a church like that, there is generosity. Be looking for that. There's a daily commitment. It's not we're here and everything else doesn't go the rest of the week. There's grateful attitudes. It's not a complaining congregation. You hear a bunch of complaining, maybe you'll look for a different people group or, or, or different place. You want to go for a place with gratitude. Because in those places, there's blessing and growth. Some neat characteristics. But most importantly, I believe there's worship going on. Because look what happens when an about face occurs. There's five desired results of Christ-like correction that we see in this text. One, the attitude turned from rejection, crucify, to submission. What shall we do? The focus turned from, we're going to do what we want to, let's repent and be baptized. The behavior turned from disobedience to, we'll do whatever the word of God tells us and the apostles tell us. The motive went from, I want what I want to, what's the loving thing to do for everyone? And the response went from anger and rejection and hatred to praise and a sense of awe in the place. I told you at the end of each, each message, I'd give you some steps of faith, okay? And I thought, let's zero in on loving confrontation. Because Jesus confronted Peter, and he did so abruptly, but he did so in a way that Peter would understand there is a mission, and it's not to be derailed. Maybe there's someone in your life you need to confront. And you want them to hear it. You want them to be cut to the heart. I would argue a lot will depend on your approach. For there are people who spoke to my life things like, you're such a disgrace. That's such a disappointment. And they made it personal and I turned them off. But there were people who spoke into my life that I could tell cared about me. Chris, I just think you're better than that. Chris, I think you have an opportunity that you're blowing. And it made me want to rise to the occasion. There are about face moments that can be ruined or leveraged in your life. And so here are seven, okay? These are seven things that I would do that I would ask myself before I would confront everybody, anybody. As a pastor, there's times where I gotta confront it. My wife will say to me, Chris, if you don't say something, who really is going to do it then? If you one of the pastors, don't say it. You guys gotta say it. And when you're called to confront, you wanna do so in a way that they actually have a positive response. And so these are seven massive questions to ask before you confront someone to promote a positive outcome, okay? Seven questions you can ask yourself, all right? Here they are. It's a step of faith to confront anything, okay? But if you got someone in your life that you wanna confront, or maybe even in your own life, give it 24 hours, okay? 
When there's tension in a relationship, do not respond right away. Give it some time. I give this counsel out to our young leaders here at church when they have to confront something. This is great for parents. This is great for coaches. This is great for leaders of organizations. Give it 24 hours. Just give it some time. Why? It takes the emotions out of the moment. There's always emotions when something happens, and over time, emotions begin to settle, but this is also what allows to happen. You let God come in, and you pray about it. God, my reaction tomorrow. God, their reaction, prepare their heart. I learned this in Little League. You never wanna get right back to a parent after a game, okay? Give it some time. Grace is new every morning, okay? And when you give it time, it takes the emotions out of the moment. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is glory to overlook an offense, Scripture tells us. The second thing I ask is, can this be covered by mercy? What do I mean? We call it the black drape principle here at church. We've got this black drape, and you know what we use it for? To cover things we don't want you to see on a Sunday. We didn't get time to clean it up. There's a bunch of junk over there. Stick it in the corner, throw a black drape over there, and poof, it goes away, okay? It's still there, but nobody needs to make it a big deal because we covered it. Well, Scripture tells, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And so many times our junk is a multitude of sins, but the black drape covers it. Love can cover things. Sometimes we want to immediately react. We want to jump down someone's throat. We want to confront them right away. But if you have a young person you love or something like this, ask yourself first, could I just cover this in mercy? They're having a bad day. I know this school's been difficult on them. You know what? I know my bride, she reacts certain ways when that happens. You know what? My husband, I know what's going on at work. Could I just let love cover this? Do I really need to confront this or can I just let love cover this? I always ask that question before I confront. Can love just cover this one? Third, consider the man of the mirror. Here's a third question. Do I have any resolved issues in this area myself? Before I confront somebody else about something, I better make sure I've dealt with this in my own life. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. So as far as it depends on me, let me start with me. Do I have unresolved issues or do I want to take a piece of flesh when I confront them? So I got to deal with my own heart or I actually be, could be seeking to hurt them. And so I ask myself, do I have unresolved issues in myself? It's amazing. Sometimes parents will know this. You're confronting your young person or somebody in your life that you care about and you're confronting them. You tell them, and you know what you should be doing? You should be doing this. And the whole time the Holy Spirit's going... No, we're not talking about me, God. We're talking about them. And, and what you need to do and how you need to respond to that, would you stop it? We're trying to yell it. This is where you need to change, parent. I know, but we're talking about them right now. Think about the man in the mirror. Do I have unresolved issues myself? Here's the fourth one. Before you confront, ask yourself, is there an elephant in the room that we're not confronting and we're just hoping it goes away? It won't go away. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus, God, you all agree and there be no divisions among you. My dad taught me this about cars when I was 16. He said that, Chris, they don't get better like human beings. So if there's a clank in the front wheel, it just won't get better. We have to take it to the shop. You mean if I don't just drive it and just like, no, it's not gonna get better. Deal with it. There are things sometimes that aren't gonna get better. We actually have to deal with the elephant in the room. So is there something in my life, Lord, or is there someone I love that I know it's wrong and I haven't been confronting it? The other shoes. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Here's a question I always ask myself before confronting. How would I want to be treated if it were me that's about to get confronted? 
I'll have people in, in, in my line of work, there sometimes you deal with very confidential things, sometimes even secret sins they would really like others not to know, and they understand you're a person of confidentiality in their life that they're coming to to try to help. And I often think, or even give the advice, how would you wanna be treated if it were you doing what you're about to confront them about? How would you want someone to come to you? And in doing so, you're putting himself in their shoes. I mean, no, nobody here at this church anymore, but I had somebody come to me going, Pastor Chris, could you talk to my teenager about the idiot they're being? Here, here they are, talk to them. I mean, it was already done. I looked at the teenager and they saw the grace and mercy in my eyes, like, I'm sorry. Like, really? Could you talk to them about the idiot they're being? Imagine being in their shoes, mom. You know what you just did to them in front of their pastor? Think about how you would want to be treated in confrontation. It will change your approach. Do you want to be browbeaten or do you want to be altered with love? Two more, the Nathan approach. How can I avoid accusation on them and get them to a point where they'll condemn themselves? Brothers, is any caught in a transgression? You are spiritual, should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. If I can't come in a point of gentleness, I need to give it another 24 hours. But come with gentleness and come with the goal of letting them condemn themselves. Nathan came up to David and said, what would you do if somebody killed another guy so he could sleep with his wife? What would you do to that kind of guy, David? And David said, I'd kill that man. And Nathan said, you're the man. What did David do? He condemned himself. Hey, is it true that you did this? Is it true that you said this? I'm not gonna accuse you of it. I'm asking you you'll find confrontation goes much better if you let them admit it. And then finally, the velvet brick. Grandmas love to have these. They had bricks by the door. And they didn't have door stoppers. They had bricks and they put velvet over them. They were so soft on the outside, but if you stubbed your toe on them, you could lose your testimony. <laughs> Am I prepared to be gentle in my approach, soft on the outside, but strong in my resolve to see change happen? Keep watch yourselves. Lest you be tempted, bear with one another's burdens to fulfill the law of Christ. There are times where we have to be firm on the inside, but our approach is soft. Never confuse kindness with weakness. Never confuse it. And sometimes in confrontation, am I prepared to be gentle in my approach, but strong in my resolve to see this stop? Any dad who knows when his tone got too loud and watched his little 12-year-old girl have tears coming down her face knows how terrible they feel when they've confronted wrong. Any dad who has screamed at his son and belittled him in public and watched the anger and division go between them knows what it feels like to confront wrong. Any leader knows what they've done to an employee when they've confronted them wrong. Here's an opportunity for you to have those about-face moments but do in such a way that you propel them into their next. That's what Jesus did for Peter. And he confronted a crowd. And that crowd went from crucify to let's love everybody. And the church was launched. Heavenly Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for what you're doing in Acts. And thank you that we can be inspired by it. Thank you for believing in your pioneers and helping them and guiding them and giving your Holy Spirit to them so that they could step into what you have for them. And thank you for using men like Peter to confront a congregation and to see them come to Christ. 
May we too be preaching repentance, but may we do it in a spirit of gentleness to see thousands maybe come to you as their savior. And if there's anybody sitting out there today in a watch groom online or in the house, that today is their day, I pray they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.